You're listening to the podcast of Williamsburg Christian Church, a community of faith joining God's pursuit of restoring lives. We hope you enjoy this week's podcast. And so I wanted to offer a story that comes from the Apostle Paul. If you have your Bibles, Galatians chapter 1, we're going to begin verse 13. He, he writes this letter to the churches in Galatia, these Christians here living in modern-day Turkey, and they're having some issues, some problems. And uh, Paul kind of starts off with an autobiography of himself, and it's going to seem a little snarky at times, which I am reminded as I've been immersing myself in Paul this week that He's kind of a snarky guy, um, but but I, I think he has reasons for snark every now and then uh, because of the stuff he has to put up with, but he's he's a little sarcastic at times, but he's very honest, and if anything about Paul, um, he was willing to die for the people he was talking to, and so maybe he'd kind of earned that, I guess. I don't know, but this is what he says, Galatians chapter 1, verse 13. For you have heard about my former way of life in Judaism. I persecuted God's church to an extreme degree and tried to destroy it. Say, tried to destroy it. In other words, he's reminding them he was a terrorist, right? He was a religious terrorist. That's like he's not even pulling back the punches. He's not saying, I was just really passionate about my faith. No, he's telling the truth. He's not going to placate his past and dress it up and make it pretty. He's going to own it because he can, because of Christ, it no longer owns him. So he's able to say, this is who I was. And he says, I advanced in Judaism beyond many contemporaries among my people because I was extremely zealous for the traditions of my ancestors. But when God, who from my birth set me apart and called me by his grace, was pleased to reveal his son in me so that I could preach him among the Gentiles. What are Gentiles? Okay, <laughs> I like that, like cut to us. Okay, yes, they're us, most of us, unless some of us here are Jewish, right? Like, um, and I think some of us are. So, so what then are Gentiles by definition? Non-Jews. Like, so just think, anybody who's not a Jew is a Gentile. All right. So Paul says, but when God, who from my birth set me apart and called me by his grace, was pleased to reveal a son in me so that I could preach him among the Gentiles, I did not immediately consult with anyone. I didn't go out and start asking folks for their permission. I didn't write a letter to Jerusalem for the ordination ceremony, right? Like I didn't go get my MDiv and go get, you know, laid my hand, laid hands on me and commissioned me and somebody tell me it's okay for me to preach. He's like, <laughs> no, I got the word and I went, He says, I did not go up to Jerusalem to those who had become apostles before me. Instead, I went to the desert. I went to Arabia, came back to Damascus, and then after three years of spending time in the desert, right, his own wilderness journey, which I guess since he was a murderer and killed the first Christian martyr, Stephen, he probably had some stuff to work out with God. He said, after I came back, after three years, I did go up to Jerusalem to get to know Peter. You know, I stayed with him for 15 days. But I didn't see any of the other apostles except for James, the Lord's brother, the earthly brother. Now, I'm not lying when in what I write to you. Like, you're like, for real, y'all. Like, he's like, for reals. I'm not, I'm not kidding. Like, this is what I did. I don't know why Paul feels like he has to say, I'm not lying. But he does. 
God is my witness. Afterwards, I went to the regions of Syria and Cilicia. I remained personally unknown uh, to the Judean churches in Christ. They, they never met me. I never met them. They simply kept hearing, He who formerly persecuted us, us now preaches the faith he once tried to destroy. His witness went out, by the way. And they glorified God because of me. Then after 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along also. I went up according to a revelation and presented them the gospel I preach among the Gentiles, but privately to those recognized as leaders so that I might not be running or have run the race in vain. But not even Titus, who was with me, though he was a Greek, was compelled to be circumcised. This issue arose because of false brothers smuggled in who came in secretly to spy on the freedom that we have in Christ Jesus in order to enslave us. But we did not give up and submit to these people for even an hour so that the truth of the gospel would be preserved to you. In other words, there were some Jewish Christians. So there were some Jewish Christians who were coming in and trying to say that if Gentiles were going to really be received and be received and receive the welcome of God in Christ, then they would have to start um, complying to some Jewish practice. And the leaders had to come together and actually meet about this in Jerusalem. And this is the meeting I think Paul is referring to. And then Paul talks about how they tried to sneak in and on him. And he said, essentially, I ain't studying them. Like, we didn't even give them an hour of our consideration because they were going to try and make us truths between the gospel and their own understanding of what it meant to be a Christian, which was largely bound up in a certain sort of Jewish supremacy that he wasn't willing to uh, bow to. And then he said in verse 6, he said, Now from those recognized as important... And then look at his parenthetical comment here. It kind of makes me laugh. What they really are makes no difference to me. God does not show favoritism. Like, I like I don't even know. Like, I didn't read their blogs, and I don't listen to their podcasts. So I don't know who they are and buy their books. Uh, he said they added nothing to me. I wasn't impressed. <laughs> I bet Paul didn't have a lot of friends. You know, like, I'm wondering, you know, like, let's hang out with Paul. On the contrary, they saw that I had been entrusted with the gospel for the uncircumcised, just as Peter was for the circumcised. So he says, so really, they, they, they believed me. I was, I was called by God to preach to the Gentiles, and just like Peter was called to preach to the Jews. And he says, since the one, at verse 8, since the one at work in Peter for an apostleship to the circumcised was also at work in me for the Gentiles. Now, when James, Peter, and John recognized as pillars in the church, acknowledged the grace that had been given to me, they gave the right hand of fellowship to me and Barnabas, agreeing that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. And they asked only that I would remember or that we would remember the poor. Now, that could be a sermon in and of itself, right? Like, that we would remember the poor which I made every effort to do. But listen to how the story goes. Paul's about to retell a hard story. But when Peter came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. I got in his grill because he stood condemned. 
for he regularly ate with the Gentiles before certain men came from James. However, when they came, he withdrew and separated himself because he feared those from the circumcision party. In other words, Peter used to hang out with the Gentiles. Like, he used to hang out with them because they had become Christians. And so this church was now filled with Gentile Christians and Jewish Christians. And Peter was down with that. Like, he would eat, he would share, um, well, like, like barbecue now, probably, and the bacon. Like, like he would share, like, food with uh, the Gentiles. And they would share a table together. And it was all good. Except it wasn't all good with the leaders in the church who were Jewish. It wasn't all good with his countrymen. Don't get me wrong. They knew that the Gentiles were accepted into the kingdom of God, but you, you didn't need to eat with them. Right? And so P- Peter gave in to that. That's why Paul says he stood condemned. He got rebuked. He gave in to that. When, when James and his cohort came, Peter was like, yeah, you know, I'm going to sit over here. He gave in to his racism because there's a long history here. Jews and Gentiles don't have they don't, they don't like each other. I bet Peter would have said, I'm not racist. And look at the, what happens. Then the rest of the Jews joined his hypocrisy so that even Barnabas was carried away by their hypocrisy. So because Peter's a leader in the church, the Jews, his fellow countrymen, start following his lead. What's happening to the church now? It's being divided right down the middle because of race. Even Barnabas, man. Do you know what Barnabas' name meant? Does anybody know? Son of encouragement. Like he was branded as like the dude you hung out with when you were down. Like, are you sad, man? You got to call Barnabas. Even Barnabas went this way. Barnabas was a very good friend of Paul's. So verse 14, but when I saw that they were deviating from the truth of the gospel, Paul calls it what it is, doesn't he? He didn't placate it. He named it. He named it. I told Peter in front of everyone, check it, in front of everyone. He didn't say I pulled Peter aside and said, hey, brother. No, no, he named it out here, and he called it what it was out here, and he rebuked him out here. Paul didn't put out a Facebook status that was passive-aggressive and say, you know, some people decided they're going to eat with He named it. And he said to Peter in front of everyone, man, if you're a Jew, if you, if you who are a Jew live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you compel Gentiles to live like Jews? In other words, dude, if you're going to start living based on your race, your own countrymen and just kind of settle up into that as if that's your identity. Listen, if you're going to settle into your identity and say that this is all I can hang out with, because i got to be with people who's like me, because that's what we do, then how, how can you proclaim a different... How can you talk inclusion? How can you do that? And then later on, 
Just a few verses later, Peter says, See, I've been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Paul anchors this in his theology of the cross. That's the why he has to say this and do this. See, don't you remember Peter, though? Like, remember Peter? Remember Peter? He's the disciple who stepped out of the boat to walk on water to meet Jesus. Like, remember how he took his eyes off of Jesus and began to drown? But at least he had the courage to step out, right? Like, you remember Peter? How on the night Jesus was betrayed and the Roman officers came to arrest Jesus, Peter was the one who had the courage to grab out the sword. Uh, He wasn't really that good a swordsman because I think he took a swing at Malchus and only got an ear, but at least he had the courage to try, even though at least then Jesus said, dude, what are you doing? I'm not going to advocate violence, put your sword away, and Jesus had to heal the ear. But hey, at least he had the courage to to, to guard Jesus' back, right? I mean, later he would deny Jesus three times. But you remember, Peter, how in Acts chapter 2 on the day of Pentecost, with thousands of Jews from all over his world were there gathered on the day of Pentecost, Peter stood up. He's the one who stood up and delivered the sermon. Remember the sermon? And he got to the climax of the sermon. Remember the climax of the sermon where he says, and all of them, probably with his fingers out, therefore let all the house of Israel know with certainty that God has made this Jesus whom you crucified both Lord and Christ, like the brother was courageous, right? Like he had courage again, right? He had found his mojo back. He was in. And remember how in Acts chapter 4, Peter got arrested with his friend John for healing a disabled man, and they had to stand before sort of their own sort of court with their leaders and politicians, and their leaders and politicians told them they needed to stop preaching about Jesus. Remember that? Remember what Peter said, Peter and John said? They said, listen, I mean, I appreciate y'all's point of view, right? Like I'm sure he said that. And and, and he said, but here's the deal. Whether it's right in the sight of God for us to listen to you rather than to God, look, you decide. As for us, we cannot stop talking about what we've seen and heard. Like, he's like, if you're going to make me choose, that's an easy deal. Like, Peter looked like he was willing to choose courage over safety. Remember how in Acts chapter 10, Peter received a vision from God that he could eat bacon and that all foods remain clean? And that as a result of that, that was a signpost that he needed to run out and go save a dude named Cornelius who happened to be a Gentile who was praying for God. And this would be the first Gentile conversion in the history of Christianity. And it took about eight or nine years for that to happen, but nonetheless it did, and it was Peter. And so he went and he, he preached the gospel to Cornelius and was present with Cornelius, and the Holy Spirit fell upon him, which gave evidence to Peter that God was serious about this accepting the Gentiles deal. And so Peter was looking at that and said, well, then we got to baptize the brother. So they baptized him. And then remember how Peter had to take some other Jews with him and they went back to their brothers, to their fellow countrymen, and had to kind of stand on the conviction that God does save Gentiles. Remember, that was Peter. And in the letter to the Galatians, remember what Paul says? He says, after I got back from the desert, I spent 15 days with Peter. Like, what was that like? You know, because I don't think Peter had known that Paul had become like a Christian, right? I don't know if he sent a courier saying, hey, Peter, I'm coming to visit you, but simmer down, I'm not going to kill you. Like, I don't know how Peter would have been like, oh, Saul, glad to have you. Come on in. So I don't know what transpired in between all of that, but I got to think that it took a little courage for Peter to keep Paul in his home because I got a feeling the neighbors weren't thinking that was too smart. 
Sounds like Peter had some courage. It sounded like Peter may have had his moment of choosing safety over courage during the trial of Jesus, but for the most part of his life, he chose courage over safety every time. Like, look, throw me in jail or threaten to kill me. Peter, it made him know, never mind. He was all right because he followed Jesus. C.S. Lewis once said that courage is not simply one of the virtues, but the form of every virtue at its testing point. I think what Lewis is meaning here is that the virtue of kindness or honesty or mercy, which yields to danger or difficulty, will only be a kindness and an honesty and a mercy with conditions. In other words, it's going to take courage to actually have virtue anyway. See, somewhere along the line, when Peter got to Antioch, his kindness, honesty, and mercy ceased to be kind, honest, and merciful. Instead, he became unkind, it seems dishonest even, uh, and judgmental. He turned to a sort of back to a Jewish superiority, and Peter lost his courage. And when he did, he failed to make the right choice. So what I want to offer us today in a teaching is going to be the most simple thing I've done in a very long time. But the irony of this is this the one thing I think the church and I, and maybe you, struggle with the most? And that is the courage to make the right choices. Especially when there's a price to be paid or an anticipation of pain to be suffered. And I want to present to you that if it could happen to Peter that he slide out in this very subtle shift, then it's a probably really good chance it could happen to us because I've never walked on water even but for a second. See, according to Paul's retelling of the story, Peter had no problem sharing a table with the Gentile brothers and sisters in Christ until James and a close friend came. James was a close friend of Peter. James was his fellow countryman. And they send a cohort down to check out Christianity, maybe to check out the church. And when they came, all of a sudden, Paul tells us, for fear of them, for fear of them, I don't know what he feared. Maybe he feared his, his reputation was going to be put on the line. Maybe he feared for uh, his, uh, I'm sure they weren't going to kill him or hurt him because they were Christians, but maybe he feared that they wouldn't think he was Jewish enough you know, patriotic enough. Maybe they feared that he uh, wasn't a countryman like he should have been. Maybe they feared that he wasn't as bold as he should have been, or maybe he shouldn't have been kind of a leading apostle. Something was there that when his fellow countrymen showed up, he feared what they would think if they caught him eating at a table with Gentiles. And so when they're there, he does it for fear. He chose to play it safe. He doesn't choose to do the right thing. And so Paul calls him out. Paul is stirred. He calls him out in front of the whole church. Peter was put in a situation to make a hard decision that would take courage, and he didn't make the right choice because it would be painful and maybe even be a prize. It's one thing baptizing the Gentiles, right? 
It's another thing sharing a table with them. It kind of reminds me of a story that Larry Thomas told me. When Larry was growing up in this small town Virginia church, it was the kind of church that celebrated the Lord's Supper every week. They sang songs like Amazing Grace. You know, the song written by John Newton, who was once a slave trader, but had repented and then wrote a song about it called Amazing Grace. Like this church used to sing that and take the table every week. And one Sunday, Larry was asked to serve as an usher. And so he, he did. And in this church in, in the 50s, they, they would accept and welcome African-American brothers and sisters in Christ, but, but they couldn't sit in the, the sanctuary. They had to sit up in the attic and kind of sing the song uh, through, through, a, through a windowless hole. And this one particular Sunday, Larry told me that there was an elderly African-American man and woman, husband and wife, who would come in, and Larry was going to do his role and usher them to their seat. Uh, but then the, the wife said, Kindly, sir, would you, could you put us somewhere else? Because my husband is hard of hearing. He had an ear horn, and he can't hear the word of God preached if, if he has to sit there. And so it made sense to Larry, and so Larry turned around and walked them into the, the sanctuary. As the eyes turn in toward them, he doesn't sit them in the back. He, he doesn't even sit them in the middle. He sits them in the front. After the service was over, uh, the leaders came to uh, Larry and just told him that his services as usher wasn't going to be needed anymore. See, Larry, Larry chose to do the right thing. And it changed him. See, there's a couple of things I think we need to know about our choices that I know we know, but I think we forget. Because the talking heads on television are the hyped up animosities or emotion can move us away from making right choices. The ideology that invites us in, or maybe even our own narrative and story, maybe even our past. And so I just want to remind us of a couple of things about our choices. One, the right choices are often painful and costly. They just are. The right ones. See, there's a price to be paid, and what we sometimes fail to realize is that a price is paid either way. We don't make the right choice because of the price we might pay, but we pay a price anyway. We just don't always realize it's the price. There's a cost regardless. See, Peter didn't know that. Peter tried to avoid paying one price just to have to pay another. One that was actually far worse than the one he was trying to avoid. He didn't have the courage to make the right choice. I imagine that Peter, being a godly and good man, like really, felt the sting of that rebuke many days and weeks afterwards. I mean, he got called out in front of the whole congregation. He's Peter, right? Like, this is Peter. But I would imagine Peter being a good and godly man, he repented and got it right. Matter of fact, I think we see Peter get it right as he writes two letters later on to a bunch of Christians who are being persecuted in Asia Minor, and he says, 
hold on to your confession. I think we see him get it right because we know that Peter would come back in his faith and he would die a martyr's death and he'd be crucified, but he would refuse to allow them to crucify him right side up because that was how Christ died. So he asked them to crucify him upside down. Peter found his courage. But Peter lost his courage and made the wrong, hurtful decision. And in a subtle way, I seriously doubt Peter woke up that morning and said, man, I hope that today I can divide the church based on race. Like I'm looking forward to doing that. I know there's no way he would have said that. He probably had all the best intentions. But this moment under pressure, the pressure of his countrymen, he lacked the courage to make the right choice. I've been Peter. I bet you have. I bet there have been times when some of us did not make the right choice because we anticipated the pain that might come or the price we might pay. And I bet some of us are there now. I bet some of us are at a place of decision. And we have to make a choice. We have to make the right choice because we realize that our jobs are taking us away from other commitments that we covenanted to, and it's taken us away far too long. And we know in our gut we need to find a new one, but the idea of taking one, the price that might be paid or the pain that that might incur might not be something I want so I don't make the right choice. Or maybe maybe I'm dating someone that really is not pushing me and pulling me and drawing me and gently leading me closer to Christ, but I really enjoy that person. And so the pain of not having that person in my life is just too great a price to pay. And so I won't make, I will lack the courage to make the right choice. Maybe some of us have ideologies and belief systems that we have that our mamas got us and our daddies gave us and our mamas' mamas gave us and our daddies' daddies gave us and that it fits like our whole lineage of people. And we know in our gut that there's something really wrong, but, but we kind of dig ourselves in and embrace kind of willful blindness, right? We just kind of deny it and we act like, oh, it doesn't really exist. Like I'm sure Peter did about the racism inside of him. I'm sure he said the same thing. And so, and so, but we deny that and we say, you know, I'm, I'm not, you know, I'm not racist. And, 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 we, and we, lack the, we lack the courage of conviction just to be humble to make the right choice when the time comes to do the right thing because the price that would be paid. Or maybe we hear our friends say the things that they say, our loved ones say things that we know just isn't of God at all, isn't helpful, isn't whole. But if we say it, we're going we're gonna to hurt them. We're going to end up in an argument, and I'm kind of conflict-averse. And the pain that that's going to incur is just not worth it. So I just, we lack the courage to say the right thing and make the right choice. We say nothing at all. Or maybe some of us want to quit our marriage. And we have every reason to do so, but yet there is a Christ who calls to us about a God who gives dead things life. And we're faced with whether or not we'll have the courage to make the right decision and trust in the God of resurrection. Don't let pain or a price keep you from making the right choice. Don't. You can choose either safety or courage, but you can't have both. 
can't have both. Not if you're going to follow Jesus as Lord. See, there's something else we need to know, though, about making choices. We need to remember that our choice, that the choices we make, the right choices, the right choices open the door for us to encounter how God's love sets us free from the attraction of other people's praise. I think this is huge. See, encountering the freedom of God's love can free us from believing that we have something to prove. That somehow I got to impress you I worry about whether or not you think I'm good. But if I come to a place where I realize I have nothing to prove, then I have nothing to fear. And the love of God can set me free from that. And this is something Peter had forgotten. Something Somewhere along the way, he apparently fell into the trap of believing that he had something to prove to his Christian countrymen and fellow Jews and receiving their approval and praise for whatever reasons became more important than the gospel, man the gospel and i know he didn't mean for it to be that way and i'm just hoping we can be humble enough to see our brother peter a father of the faith sliding into this subtle reality of this ism in his life negotiating the gospel because he's afraid of what his countrymen would think he feared the circumcision party as paul said whatever that may have mean And then we remember Paul. Remember Paul? He's kind of a boss, right? Like, he wasn't too impressed by the leaders. Remember what he said in the parenthetical comment? Right? Like, now from those recognized as important, what they really were makes no difference to me. God doesn't show favoritism. Hey, they, they, they added nothing to me. He, he, was, he was good. And you know why I think Paul was good? Because I've been thinking about this as we kind of start wrapping up. I've been thinking about this, like, how do we become courageous like Paul? How in the world did Paul get to a place where he was like, makes me know, never mind, that the brother of Jesus has an opinion about me? And I think it's because of, I think there's a lot of things, and, and here's the thing, I'm not sure I even get it. Like, I don't think I can do it, but I think I'm understanding. Because see, here's the thing about Paul. Whatever price he had to pay, he would pay for the sake of the gospel for making the right choice, and he would do he would make the right choice. Listen to his listen to his ledger of accomplishments. Right in Second Corinthians eleven verse twenty four. If you want to really read snark, read above this because Paul gets really snarky above this text. But this is what he says. He's like, look, check it. Five times I received thirty nine lashes from Jews. Three times I was beaten with rods by the Romans. Once I was stoned by my enemies. Three times I was shipwrecked. Dude, I don't have to be shipwrecked once. I'm not going on the ship again. You know what I'm saying? Like I'm done. I'll walk. Give me a camel, donkey, I'm good, right? Like, I'll get there, it'll be months. I mean, but no, he, he does, brother does it two more times, and it's shipwrecked. Three, who get who ship, who does that? All right, like, I've spent a night and a day in the open sea. Oh, like, that's comparable to that? Like, really? Um, I bet one of those times was because he was shipwrecked. You know, like, come on, causation, Paul. All right, on frequent journeys, I faced dangers from rivers. I bet you did. Dangers from robbers. Dangers from my own people. Dangers from the Gentiles. Oh, dangers in the city. Dangers in the open country. Dangers on the sea. Dangers among false brothers. Labor and hardship. More sleepless nights. Hunger and thirst. Often without food, clothing, lacking clothing. Like, he just one-upped everybody. And he says, not to mention, like not to mention, by the way, this daily pressure on me 
because of my love for the church. Like, how did Paul have courage like this? I, I, got, a, I, got, I got a thesis. I'm going to do what I never do. I have four reasons. All right, and I'll go through them quick. Four reasons why I think. One, he refused to forget his own story. He knew the Scriptures. He knew the story of the God who parted the Red Sea in the moment where the Israelites needed safety. He remembered the 11-day journey into a 40-year wandering from last week. Remember that? He remembered that story. He knew the Scriptures. He knew the story. And like he wrote in Romans later, it was the Scriptures that gave him patience and hope. In other words, check it out. He read his Bible. And he knew the story. And it changed him. And so when his personal feeling for safety was starting to override his need to be courageous, he remembered the story of a God who will not let his people drown and he got back on a ship. But then what I know about Paul is true is that he knew that because Jesus wouldn't stay dead, he wouldn't stay dead either. He knew that story. And so if for some reason the ship did wreck and he didn't make it out, he was just going to be with Jesus anyway. He even says that later, remember? He's like, look, man, to be with y'all would be great. To be with Jesus would be great. Like, I'm torn. He was good. I think another way we can develop the courage to make the right choice is to trust in God's promise of presence and know who you are because of whose you are. I think Paul knew that. Paul knew that he was the chief of sinners and he was a murderer of Christians and nobody needed to remind him of that. He was painfully aware. But he also knew that he was no longer that because he was now an heir of Christ. He was forgiven. And you even and not only that, he knew he belonged to Christ. And not even that, he knew he was actually in Christ. He says this later on in this letter that he wrote, Galatians 3. If you look at your Bibles, he says in chapter 3, verse 26, For you all are sons and daughters of God through faith in Christ Jesus, for as many of you have been baptized into Christ, have put on Christ like a garment. There is, not, there is no Jew or Greek, slave or free, male or female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus because you belong to Christ. Then you are Abraham's seed, so he knew his story, and heirs according to his promise. See, Paul had certainty in the realities of his baptism. And he wanted us to be certain in ours. That we become sons and daughters of God through faith in Christ. For as many of us who have been baptized into Christ to put on Christ like a garment. And that makes us heirs of God's kingdom. And sons and daughters of God and brothers and sisters of God. And so then Paul says, and he says rightly because Paul, because Peter was by it in the Jewish supremacy. So he says later on, he says, and oh, by the way, in Christ, there's neither Jew or what? Greek. Slave or what? Male or female, what? Because all are one in Christ Jesus. In other words, what he's saying, he's not saying, oh, we're just colorblind and we're ethnicity blind. No, he's not saying that. That's ridiculous. He's not saying that. What he's saying is that we're equal. The ground, nobody gets more privileges in the kingdom than others. Hey, look, women get just as many privileges in the kingdom of God as men everywhere, including in the church. That's the whole point of the text. But so do Jews and Greeks. So do slave and free. Ground is level at the foot of the cross. And Paul's really down with that. That's why he said Peter was violating the gospel. I wonder, I wonder if we inadvertently, like Peter, violate the gospel too. 
That's a, that's, a, that's a scary question to ask. But three, another way we can develop the courage to make the right choice is to trust that God is enough. And look, this has got to be more than a praise song written by Chris Tomlin. It's just got to be. Like, it's got to be more than a Jesus is my boyfriend song, right? Like, it's got to be more than a sing the same line 72 times, which I'm thankful our team, we don't, we don't do that. Like, it's like, okay, I get it, John. We love Jesus, right? Like, I'm glad you don't lead us in those songs. The thing is, is like, like it's got to be more than that. Like, really, if you think about it, like Galatians chapter 2, verse 19, he says, For I've been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. Paul was all in. He was all in, and he knew God's love for him was far greater than anything anyone else could offer. He knew it. Because he was an extraordinarily sinful man who was forgiven and welcomed in to the life of God, and given a task, giving something to do too, to lead. Oh my goodness, he was a terrorist who now leads and plant churches. I don't know about you, but this can be hard for me, this idea of God is more than enough. I'm all too easily distracted in something, and somehow believing that someone or something can offer me something better than God. My plans, my dreams, my desires, my ego can all deceive me somehow into believing that if only I have this or that in my life, it'll be better or I'll be whole or I'll be fulfilled. And here's what I'm learning. Here's what I'm learning. When I start believing that the grass is greener on the other side and jump the fence, God has to lift me back over, point me to the water hose and tell me to water my own grass. And the thing is, he's provided the water. And he's giving me the hose. I just got to turn the thing on and stop jumping the fence. He's given me all I need. I just have to decide whether I want a life that is safe and manageable or a life that is faithful and courageous because I can't have both. God's made promises he intends to keep. And there's a story that starts in Genesis 1 that says he keeps them. The truth is, sometimes we have to choose whether we believe God is enough, we have to remember that there's nothing that God can't give. He's already given us life by giving himself. He can provide a way to pay your bills. He can provide a way to heal your marriage. He can fill up what is lacking in your soul, and you can let go of that relationship or that job that's wrecking it. He can provide the joy that is lacking and the peace that is missing, so you can let go of that behavior or that hobby or that habit or that coping strategy that is filling it up, and you can let go of denial because God's going to love you anyway. What we have to remember is that we can't set our lives in pursuing the healing and ignore the healer. If you pursue the healer, you get the healing. If you pursue the blesser, you get the blessing. But if you pursue the blessings, it's not going to be good enough, and you're going to want more, and God will never be enough. Having God in Christ is enough because in Christ you and I are sons and daughters of the King and we are heirs to the kingdom of God. There is nothing he won't give, including himself. Finally and fourthly, we can develop the courage to make the right choices by obeying God. Imagine that, right? Like entrusting him with the consequences and not doing it alone. 
When Peter chose not to obey God and trust him with the consequences, he paid a price, and you know what? He needed Paul. We need each other. Remember what we said last week? Courage is not something you try, it's something you train for, and it can only be trained for within the context of community, Christian community. Peter needed Paul to rebuke him. I imagine it was humiliating. See, I think what the world needs, and I'm just me, so this is a grandiose kind of statement, right? Like, what the world needs now is courageous people who love and who are willing to pay the price. And the people of God who are filled with the Spirit of God, which is supposed to be us, we're the ones who should have the most courageous witness of all. We should charge the darkness and even charge hell with a squirt gun if we've got to because we can. Because Jesus has already said, not even the gates of hell are going to prevail against me. So you, if you're on the defensive, you need gates. Guess who has gates? Hell. It's on the defensive, man. We have nothing to fear. We just have to decide if we're going to choose safety or courage because we can't have both. But what I'm wondering is, will you and I make the right choices? Will we have the courage to do that? And if for some reason we don't, will somebody here be a Paul? Will somebody here stand up and say, you've negotiated the gospel? Will we be that kind of people for each other? Because the world needs a courageous witness, and God knows it needs hope. And the only one who can give that to this world is the people with the answer, and the answer is Jesus, and that means us. We have the signs and the symbols and the practices and the language and the promises and the truth of hope because we have Jesus. And so whatever decision you have to make tomorrow or this afternoon or next week, take courage. You can make the right decision. Make the right choice. Yeah, there's going to be pain. Jesus already said that. Remember we talked about that last week. Jesus gave us a heads up. In the words, you're going to have trouble. But take courage, because I've overcome the world. You're going to have pain. There's going to be a price. If we're faithful together, you won't have to pay that price or feel that pain alone. We have to choose courage.